0: Everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Biography. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Joyce Salisbury about her biography of the 5th century Roman empress Galla Placidia, entitled Rome's Christian Empress. Joyce, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a retired professor uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm a professor of history and of religious studies that specialized in early Christianity and the late antique and early medieval. So I've written a bunch of books on that subject, and it's what I do for fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what led you to write a biography of Gala Placidia?
1: Well, I'm interested in biography in a particular way. Um, I... I'm less interested in sort of the arc of a biography of a person's life, you know? I'm really interested in seeing their context. Sometimes we're shaped by what goes on around us, and sometimes, in weird ways, we our presence shapes larger forces. So, in this biography, and in others I've written, you'll see I weave in a, a lot of information. Just to give you one quick example, to give you an idea, um, Placidia's Brother, the emperor passed a law banning Romans from wearing trousers. Okay, that you know seems a little odd, but not when you notice that she ran off with a barbarian wearing trousers. So, so you can see that things are linked in this web of history, and I like tracing all of these threads. So that's what I try
0: to do. I liked it a lot because I felt that what you did by doing that was you helped to underscore, among other things, her significance as a figure, which is something that I not necessarily every biography does. Sometimes you study a life in isolation, and you miss the degree to which it impacted the times in which the person lived. And I felt that by doing that, that really came out, the degree to which she was involved in these events, and also how these events helped illustrate aspects of her life that we oftentimes miss.
1: Great. It worked then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Because the context is so important, I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining a bit about the context of the world into which Gallop was born. What was the Roman Empire like during that time, and what were some of the key issues that they were dealing with that would have a major uh, influence upon her life?
1: Okay, so we've got the late 4th century. So let's say from 3, well, actually from 376, but we won't quibble about a year or two. All right, so during the late 4th century, Rome was confronting two major things that would dramatically shift this empire that had stood for over 400 years. One was the politics. These barbarian tribes were coming roaring into the empire in bits and pieces, in waves, in trickles. So Rome had to confront a whole new influx of people and a new influx of cultures. And if I could say parenthetically, I have colleagues who suggest that the influx of refugees into Europe today parallels this early influx of people of a different culture speaking different languages roaring into the empire. So the Roman Empire had to deal with this politics of that. Secondly, the dramatic change that was going on, Placidius' father, Theodosius I, had declared that Christianity was the only religion legal in the empire. So now you had the Roman Catholic Church, so all Romans were Christians. And then he died, I mean, which was sort of convenient. But that left his children to sort out, including Galapocinia, by the way, to sort out, okay, how does that work exactly? How are Romans Christians? So you see this intersection between the politics of barbarians and the politics of religion conspiring to change the empire from what it had been before. And Galapagos City is in the center of that.
0: And as you, is that enough context, or do you want some more? Well, I, I was going to uh, uh, also mention that it's th- also complicated by the fact that in some ways we're, we're, we're beginning to talk not about one empire, but about two. And I was wondering if you explained explain that, that structure, because as you uh, describe in your book, that, that also plays a role in her life, the fact that you're talking about a Western Roman Empire and an Eastern Roman Empire as well.
1: Yes, perfect. So Theodosius had three children, we'll see, two sons, Arcadius and Honorius. And Theodosius thought both sons deserved to be emperors, so for convenience, he um, divided the emperor, empire administratively into the east and the west. It had been done before, and he continued it. So his son, Arcadius, ruled in the east from the city of Constantinople. Um, and Honorius ruled in the West, which would have been from Rome. His court was in Milan. So here you have this, this, for administrative purposes, the empire was in two parts, but both ruled by the House of Theodosius. And this is significant because, you know, here's the thing. Once Theodosius declared the empire Christian, he and others around him said God was on the side of the House of Theodosius. And now, um, the ruler of the empire shifts from being, oh, the guy with the strongest arm or the strongest army, to being the one with the blood of Theodosius in his veins or her veins, as we will see, because God's on their side.
0: As you explained though, in, in the book, and as I think you'll illustrate when we're when we're going over history, that doesn't necessarily prove to be enough, that, that, that you still need to have a, a nice strong army and an ability to command their loyalty uh, in order if you're going to remain in power.
1: Yes, and you need a strong general. I mean, both these sons of Theodosius were useless. Arcadius in the east, a local um, sort of chronicler who was kind of in, on his side said, he is led around like an ox if that's the best thing you can say about him. (laughs) You know, Honorius in the West was just as bad. He hung out with his eunuchs in the court. To be honest, he couldn't dredge up enough energy to consummate his marriages. You know, so here we have neither of them are warriors, so both will have to rely on strong generals. Well, if you have a family who's relying on strong generals, a woman can do that too and just as effectively.
0: And that raises one of the interesting questions about uh, uh, Placidia relative to her brothers, which is, what was it about her childhood and upbringing that made her so much more effective of a leader than either of her brothers who, as you describe in the book, were literally born into the purple?
1: Yep, and stayed there. (laughs) Well, it's funny, it's so It's so tempting to do a kind of psychology backup on this, but, of course, one really can't prove it. But what we can look at are the facts. The thing was, Theodosius was married twice. His first wife produced these two boys, and then she died. When he married the second wife, then she produced the daughter, Galliclofidia. So you have step situations, right? So the brothers never approved of the stepmom. There's an old story, isn't it? And so they for sure didn't like the stepsister. So she was alienated from this court from the beginning. She wasn't raised with that kind of pampered privilege. And the other thing we know about her is that that irritated her. She believed she should be empress. And she worked very hard to get the title and the status. So what we see here is a young girl raised on the outside, looking at these pampered, useless brothers of hers and thinking, well, I like to translate it loosely. I can do that better than that. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so when opportunity strikes, she's got the wherewithal. She does it.
0: How was it that she developed this wherewithal? Was she? Uh, was it uh, a, f- a function of anything that her mother did? Was it her? Uh, was it her? Uh, w- was it her education? How was she raised? Well,
1: she was raised. Her father died when she was young, and her mother had died before that, so she was an orphan. So who was going to raise her? Well, as we've seen, stepbrothers were not any candidates for this task but she was raised by Stilicho and his wife. He is a general who was the strong right arm of the Emperor Honorius in the West. Stilicho essentially ruled for 13 years, keeping the empire safe from Goths, keeping the emperor on the throne, and Sidia was raised in his household. His wife, Serena, was careful that she was raised as Roman daughters should be raised. She got a great education. She could read Greek. She could read Latin. She could read law. We know she had a good background in the law, history, military history. She was also raised to weave and spin. She was raised with religion. She was raised to be a perfect emperor, empress. But what Stilicho was thinking was that if all else failed, she could marry his son, and then his family could rule. So she, would, she had a really, you know, wise upbringing. But what's, funny, what's interesting to me, this is her stepmother who's raising her.
0: And it's interesting how even though she is being raised with so many of the skills necessary to rule, as you as you explained, she's in a sense still being expected to play this secondary womanly role, and not necessarily to become an empress, in uh, a ruler in her own right.
1: Yes, absolutely, and we'll see that play out, well, I see in the course of this hour, I uh, hope, into the next generation. She's raised to rule, but to raise to be a proper woman. So it's an interesting dilemma, and we can see that, at, at least what I consider evidence, that she resents the stepmother, is when she has an opportunity, she makes sure the stepmother is executed. It's like, okay, no love loss here. but <laughs> so she's raised in the household, she's got the skills,
0: and she's waiting for her opportunity. Uh, so you mentioned Stelicho. Uh, so Could you, Could you explain, explain a bit about, about him, him how and how it was came he came to uh, serve as Placidia's uh, surrogate uh, father?
1: Sure. Um, Theodosius, before he died, knew he needed a strong general to help Honorius through his majority, Uh, and so he selected Stilicho. He was half barbarian, he was a great general, he was very loyal to the Theodosian family, and Stilicho had his own desires to rise in um, to the imperial title, and he had two daughters and a son. So here we go. We got some spouses available for Honorius and perhaps for Galliphosidia. So Stilicho was well-motivated to keep the empire safe, and in fact, um, Honorius ended up marrying his first daughter, Maria. She died as a virgin. Honorius married his second daughter, who was sent home as a virgin, both unconsummated. So you could see Stilicho had a motivation to be loyal to the house of Theodosius, he had him, and he was a great general. So that's where he was, you know. He was really a good, reasonable choice for um, Theodosius. And he held the barbarians at bay until 408 when he died. So here we have the situation then in 408. Let me sort of lay it out here. The greatest of the barbarian tribes were the Goths, they were raiding the Balkans. They were a big army, 100,000 people and more. And Delicho repeatedly had to battle with the leader of the Goths, Alaric. And in 408 then, Delicho's dead. Alaric raiding in to um, Italy. Honorius runs, no problem. He takes his court over to Ravenna behind marshes. He, in a sense, can say, all right, let the barbarians rampage in Italy. Me and my court are fine behind these marshes and walls of Ravenna. And then um, Galloplyphidia is in Rome with Serena, the wife of Stilicho. So here you have the barbarians at the gates, and that's when um, Galloplyphidia sells out Serena and gets her executed by the Senate. And the problem is the Goths are at the gate. So here we have the situation that this tentative um, balance of power, which had Stilicho against Alaric, had fallen apart. The Goths are way ahead now. And this leads, and
0: this leads of course, to one of, one of the epic, epic moments, moments in, in history. the history of the Roman Empire.
1: For 10, Rome was sacked by the Goths. Um, it's held up at this horrible um, event. Probably wasn't as horrible as the subsequent um, raiding was because Alaric was outside. There was hunger in Rome. There was um, famine, and Honorius wasn't coming to help. He didn't have the troops. So someone inside Rome opened the gates for him, probably a woman, Proba, who said—and apparently he was negotiated because um, Alaric told his troops, you get three days to sack the city. you got to give your guys— Time to sack. And yet, you have to stay away from the churches. So, St. Peter's outside the wall and St. Paul's outside the walls were going to be sanctuaries for Christians because Alaric, too, was a Christian. And everybody's a little nervous about having, you know, putting God on somebody's side or not. You know, you want to be a little careful about that. Um, And so, it was a plan three days of raiding, leaving the Christians pretty much alone. Portions of the city got burnt, but not the whole city, and they captured Galla Placidia. They found such a prize. I mean, they loaded up their wagons with wealth and everything Rome had, and they thought the daughter, the sister of the emperor, was the best prize of all, all, and they expected to get lots of um, ransom from her. Of course, I'm picturing the correspondence with Honorius, and the emperor says, eh, keep her. I never liked her that much anyway. You know? <laughs> Take her. <But laughs> so, there,
0: there, yep. there, there's so, always those sibling girl. problems.
1: <laughs> oh, I know. You have to be sure you know what you've got. But to see here what Honorius knew, but not yet, if you wanted the next the next person to rule to be from the house of Theodosius, That goes through Placidia's womb, not through Honorius, since he wasn't consummating any marriages. So he hadn't thought it through to think about, oh, hang on, I better get my sister back here, but he'll think about that later.
0: Well, well, that points, that points to, to you what you talk about in the book about the poor quality of, quality of uh, Honorius, uh, Honorius and Arcadius as, as emperors, which, emperors. Which, but it also, but it also this raises this question, question because, as you describe, right, in, in, lieu in lieu of their own will and, will and ideas, ideas, they tend to be manipulated by, by, or, 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 directed by, or, by or, or directed by the, official the officials account. around them. And it's, and it's interesting is to and, and I in. Give what, what you described, the sources probably don't help us here, as to whether or not they picked up on it, or maybe, or maybe it got into the mill of court, court politics, and they, they all they figured here, that maybe they were better done, better done without her, or something like that, perhaps.
1: They really needed her. Because maybe he hoped the barbarian would kill her, whatever, you know? Um, but what's also surprising to me is alright, she's kidnapped Got, they've raided Rome. Where are they going to go? They wander around, sacking places in Italy for literally years. So you have these rampaging 150,000 or more barbarians raiding from Tuscany all the way down to the tip of Italy to Cis- trying to get to Sicily. They never get there, but they're wandering back and forth. Now here, I want to sort of stop a minute. And talk about religion for a minute, okay? If you know, a little, little small religion digress, digression here, because it's central to this story. Because what you have here is you have the, many of the Romans who escaped, went down to North Africa, and it seemed like the world had collapsed, you know? They thought God was on the side of Rome. They thought God was on the side of Theodosius. How could they let the city of God be sacked, you know? Can you imagine what kind of crisis of confidence that created? Well, the person they ran into down there was Augustine, the greatest mind theologian in the West. So they had people who went to, to Augustine and they said, explain to us how bad this happened. And I love that we have some—I've I've written on Theodosius, on Augustine a lot— so I'm, I'm always interested in his sermons, and he has some early sermons when he says, "Oh, essentially, God didn't destroy Rome; it just smacked it. You know, don't get over it." Well, that's not very satisfying when your home's been burnt and you're a refugee. So someone went to Augustine and said, "Look." Could you just really write a book that explains all this? The emperor's daughter, the sister's been kidnapped, Rome has been destroyed. How are we to understand this? And he wrote the most influential book in um, theology and Christian history, The City of God. And so in this, he explains that, well, really, he, he recasts Christianity. God doesn't vote for one city Rome isn't the city where God lives. God lives somewhere else. The city of God is in heaven. And the local cities, it's just permeated by, we might say, holiness rays from the city of God. So, so the city of God isn't Rome. The city of God is the Christians who live within Rome. So Rome wasn't destroyed. The city of God wasn't destroyed. It was only the pagan city. You follow that, it's kind of like a nuanced argument.
0: Yeah, yeah, but what it, it does,
1: is. it lets, yeah, do you see it changes the
0: thing? Mm-hmm. It, also makes, it also makes for an interesting for an interest in contrast with the sacking that you described, because from what August, Augustine writes, it seems it as, though as though it's this destructive event, destructive event the, equivalent of, the equivalent of, say, you know, a mighty bomb going off, and, yeah, and yet you describe, you describe it being ordinary. much more orderly. So, it, so it, the fact that Augustine Augustin writes, a book, writes a, like that, a book like that, trying to, trying to rationalize, rationalize this event, shows, shows how large it must have loomed for the people at that time to have had Rome you know, even sacked, though even though, as you described, three days, just three uh, days. Uh, yeah, uh, well, is, you, you know, <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> like it didn't seem like that to like them at the time. Certainly. Right. What was was, uh, uh, Placidia's life like with the That's a huge thing. Yes. Yes.
1: Well, and this, I can only kind of vaguely untangle it, but it was very interesting because she's obviously traveling in an ox cart because that's how all the Goths traveled, this long train of ox carts. And they treated her according to sources in accordance with her status. So that means she was well treated. She was put under guard by Alaric's brother-in-law, Athos, and he was, well, handsome and, as barbarians go, very nice-looking and smart, and they hung out together, and according to the sources, in the course of this, con, his guard, they're hanging out as they travel, I mean, literally for years, Uh, Athos came to appreciate her, her wisdom, her knowledge of the law, her knowledge of other things, and, well, Did they fall in love? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) But they certainly (laughs) decided to get married.
0: (laughs) It's also interesting that those traits are mentioned because it suggests that he saw her as more than just a woman who could bear children who would give them entree into the uh, Theodosian line.
1: Absolutely. And all the sources indicate that anything like that was her idea that he had, was looking for a homeland to set up his goth somewhere. They were looking at the Balkans because that's where Alaric wanted his homeland. But in the course of talking to Placidia, she seemed to change her mind in several fronts. In the first place, they decided to go to Spain. Giant change. Her Theodosian family was from Spain, and she had stories and had heard. She had never been there, but she had heard about what a great land it was. And so then... All this parade of Visigoths, instead of marching around Italy waiting for Honorius to do something, decided to cross the Alps and go settle in Spain, which, since we know the future, the Visigothic kingdom was set up in Spain. So we know that worked. So the second thing she seemed to have persuaded him of was that maybe the Roman law is a good thing. And so we get writings of Visigothic laws. She wants them to follow law. And finally, she has a different idea, and even Atholf reports this. He thought he would have a Visigothic kingdom of his own. She thought that the Visigoths and Romans would combine, and he would rule the whole empire. So there we have the blood of Theodosius being offered up as a way to rule and get rid of her brother, whom she never liked. So they cross the Alps, and they get married in Narbonne. And we can again see her um, sort of fingerprints on this, because we have a description of the wedding, and the wedding is straight-up Roman. He dresses in Roman armor (coughs) with a Roman imperial robe on. She dresses as a Roman. They're married in a Roman villa. They follow the Roman tradition, and he gives her huge gifts. Okay, they were raided from Rome in the first place, but fair enough. She she gets all these jewels back. (laughs) I mean, you had to get them somewhere. But, you know, so they had this giant Roman wedding in Narbonne. Now, she has laid down the gauntlet. She says, in a sense, to her brother, I'm creating a new empire. I have my husband. I have the blood of Theodosius. We are going to challenge you. Can you imagine how angry Honorius was? He was beside himself. How how far,
0: course, far did by, go ahead, go yeah ahead. go ahead?
1: I was going to say, I was gonna how, say
0: far how far did that challenge get before Adolf died?
1: Not far enough, sadly. I think. Well, and the thing was, Honorius had his new strong, um, strong right arm, his new general, a man named Constantius Third. And Constantius, he had his eye on the imperial throne, and the only way he could get it was to marry Placidia. So here we have him furious that Placidia undercut him and married the barbarian. So they moved on down. Uh, Placidia duly got pregnant, they settled in Barcelona. And if you ever go to Barcelona, which I recommend, of course, it's a wonderful city, Um, they have a statue of Athol, they have Athol's Road, and they have a wonderful museum, archaeological museum excavated under the Barrio Gotica, which is the Gothic quarter of Barcelona, and where they lived. And you can see literally the streets where Placidia walked by the laundry and the wine store from her palace. So they set up shop there in the beautiful walled city of Barcelona and she had her baby she gave the baby the imperial name Theodosius. In case there was any doubt, she gave that child her father's name. He was going to rule.
0: Was looked
1: perfectly so,
0: so so what
1: happened what happened to the baby? The baby died. The baby grew ill in the summer, didn't even make it to a year old, and the two of them Um, buried the child in a little silver sarcophagus out of town, and we'll come back to that child. She excavates him at the end of her life. She still remembered him fondly. And then, presumably, she and Athol were planning to have more children. But Visigoths were violent folks. Um, Athol was in the stable tending to his horses, and one of his men stabbed him and... Atholf died. That was sort of the death of a dream, and um, essentially, Placidia was sent back to her brother Honorius. But, in the course of that, what have we got there? The Visigoths are established as federates of Rome. They're, in a sense, normalized that to have the Visigothic kingdom, which extended from southern France all the way down to Spain... And then when she went back, delivered back to her brother in Ravenna, she took her Visigothic guard, she took the money, and she was always favored the Visigoths. So suddenly, these people who were no, who were you know barbarians rampaging, are now part and parcel of the Roman Empire in in a, in a good standing because of Placidia's marriage and her continued support of the Visigoths. So then she gets back to Rome, you know, to Ravenna. Well, her brother had already decided he wanted her to marry this Constantius. And she said, no, no, no. And he didn't care whether she said no. He grabbed her hand, handed her over to Constantius, and she was remarried. So that's husband number two for her.
0: Was that marriage, was that marriage uh, did, uh, did she ever, she she ever warm to Constantius? Constantius? Because, because from, you from what you do, book, write in the book, he's a pretty impressive person right. in his own right. He goes from being a soldier in uh, Britain to becoming this leading general.
1: Yes, he was fairly impressive, but he wasn't, well, I guess you would say he wasn't likable, and she never liked him. And um, she did dutifully have two children, we might say the heir and the spare, Um, Valentinian her son and her daughter Honoria. Shortly after she's had those two Constantius dies in surprising circumstances The, um, the sources don't really suggest she poisoned them but you know I'm always suspicious when people just happily die so conveniently but she has the heir Valentinian and the daughter Honoria now I want to say, let's look back at her childhood for a minute, because this part of the story is, you know, history repeats itself, but never quite the same, you know. Um, Placidia remembered how she hated her brothers, how they resented her, how she wanted to have the title Empress as well. So she wanted to try to make sure that her daughter and son wouldn't have these this competition going on in their lives. So she very quickly gave her daughter the title of Empress Augusta the same almost the same time she gave her son the child of the title of emperor. Her daughter had her own money, her own palace as she was growing up and her own title. And well sort of come back happens to her <laughs> with women's history very often you can have all the money and the title, But without power, without some sort of entree into um, a legitimate, what we might say, a job, they're not satisfied, and Honoria wasn't. So we'll see what happens with that. But um, Placidia became regent on her own for 20 years. She ruled as her children, almost 20 years as her children grew up. So she got what she wanted. She ruled in the West, especially once her brother, and her brother died too, I should mention. (laughs) So so
0: did she did she become regent because of her brother's inability to produce an offspring or were, or were there some additional machinations that brought her to that position?
1: Well, as long as her brother her brother didn't produce offspring, so that was part one. uh <clears throat> On her brother's good side while she was alive, to be sure she wouldn't be you know, treated badly. She also had to run off to Constantinople with her children to, to make friends with the eastern part of the court so they would support her. I mean, there were a number of, endless numbers of um, people aspiring to the throne in the West to try to get rid of her and her family. But she made it all work. It was, she was really quite enterprising, quite, quite the strong political woman. And the strong religious woman at this point, you know, some of the things that we see that theology worked out, it wasn't just the city of God, but we can trace, for example, theologians write about how the Virgin Mary becomes um, important in religion and and in, in studying and or those beautiful mosaics in Ravenna. After you go to Barcelona, I recommend Ravenna. So you can see these <laughs> magnificent. <laughs> put it, put it on your travel list. You can see these magnificent mosaics that she designed, and it's a vision of of heaven and holiness that she inspired. You can you can really see it. And um, she, in in her honor, the Pope built the great church, uh, Santa Maria Maggiore. Um, it's the old fifth century church and there's a mosaic there of the Virgin Mary that's the spitting image of another image we have of Dalla Placidia. So she becomes literally the image of the heavenly empress as she rules. So her her hand what her hand on things influences um, military policy. She has to juggle various generals and by the way now Huns are rolling in as if you don't have bad enough, the Goths weren't bad enough, you've got the next batch, which are Huns kind of pressing. she's got to negotiate all of these problems. the vandals attack North Africa, and at the same time, she has her hand of Of the West through this late fourth early fifth century as she as she guides everything, quite an amazing um, accomplishment, I think.
0: What were some of the greatest challenges that she faced in particular? Uh, Because you spent some time talking talking about about all the challenges, challenges, but there's some some that that seem to to have played a greater role than others in terms of uh, dictating dictating the issues of a regency.
1: Well, one that I particularly like because of the irony of the thing. Well, I I don't know if you can like a challenge, but I I guess you can. (laughs) I mentioned the Huns are coming in. All right, so you have Attila the Hun, everybody's heard of him. He came in raiding, um, plundering, and by the way, he was called the scourge of God, because they kept having to raise this question, why is God allowing Attila to beat all our armies? And the answer was, well, God is using him to punish us for misbehaving, so there, there always has to be God's plan in this. But you've heard of Attila the Hun coming raiding, but what most people haven't heard of is Presidia's daughter's role in this. Now, we have these two kids. We have Valentinia, who is now emperor, and you have Honoria, who has the title empress. She's got her own money, she's got her own life, and she's got no power. But she has a great idea. She sends her ring to Attila the Hun and proposes marriage to him. Really? Was that a good idea? So so here, again, I sort of loosely translate it. Well, Mom had a barbarian. Maybe I can get me one, too. So she sends her ring to Attila the Hun. He comes in to claim his bride. Her notion was she would split the Western Empire and her brother could have Italy and she would take Gaul with her husband, Attila the Hun. Well, you know, as I said, history repeats itself, but not quite. Attila was no athos. Uh He was a pagan who had three wives already. I'm not sure sure what she was thinking, but she was thinking that she would use this bit of power. Well, can you imagine how angry her brother was when he discovered that little plot? The only wonder is that he didn't kill her right away. Galaphysidia intervened to keep the daughter alive and have her marry a senator, to keep her safe. Well, she was kept safe only until Galloplycidia died, and then suddenly the honoria disappears from from history. But consider this. If so you have this notion of a new barbarian coming down, why didn't he succeed? Well, the famous um, piece of it is that the Pope confronts the uh, Achille the Hun at Lake Garva and says, God won't, won't let you come any... Go home now. Well, Attila's army was full of um, sickness and he had revolts at home, so sure, he had to go back again. He had to leave and then leaving his bride to be, Honoria, in the lurch. Attila left, and by the way, he died. He married a new young bride and died in the bridal bed after having <laughs> had too much to drink. Is there some? irony there maybe <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but what of the certainly one of the challenges placidia faced with these incoming goths and the loss of north africa to the vandals because they and took over she had to negotiate a marriage to keep the vandals at bay but the the point is she did You know, when Gibbon talked in the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, he blamed the fall of the Roman Empire on Placidia and other empresses. No. I mean, the empire should have fallen. She held it together, I think you could safely say. But, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's interesting, it's interesting how, that how she hard. had all, all the skills to do that that brothers her brothers, who were, who were better positioned to do so, never did. And it really, and it really is an interesting commentary about uh, sort of the, the, the gender roles and gender attitudes and how – E, on, one level, on one level, even in spite of them, she could, she could you know assume this role and play this uh successful uh you know role as a manager of the empire uh for as long as she did
1: and I don't know i'm as a mother and grandmother I always often wonder what is it that makes one kid be able to rally and turn out great and others. Or perhaps not as well as others might, you know. And you just can't predict, can you? You know, here you have these emperors who have these pampered sons. You see it repeatedly: woman emperors produced good for nothings. And one of the things that I see repeatedly in looking over women in the past is that if there's a vacuum, sometimes that's when you can get a strong woman to rise and make it on her own. You know, if these brothers were totally competent, she might have been equally competent, but without the opportunity to step up and accomplish something. And then you get something like her daughter, Honoria, who believes she was just as competent as her mom, but picked the wrong barbarian. You know, sometimes people are <laughs> lucky, sometimes not so much, <laughs>
0: Well, I'm, also I'm also thinking that, that Honoria's, Honoria's uh, assumption there really speaks to also, to also the fact the that, that you know Placidia was such a obviously a very visible, visible role model to, to have done something, done something like that to and to have her say, daughter say, wow wow, if, if my that, mom could do that, then, yeah, then maybe I could do the same thing too.
1: I know. How do we know what model we get our daughters and our sons for that matter, right? Well, and it even gets worse, actually, because, well, after, uh, I'll, I'll jump ahead briefly, after Placidia dies, her son, Valentinian, really screws everything up and dies. Valentinian's wife was so angered, so that's Placidia's daughter-in-law, was so angered at her husband's death that she looked around and she thought, Maybe I can find a barbarian who will help me out of this and get even. So she invited the vandals from North Africa to come up and save her. Well, they really plundered Rome. Our our term vandalism and vandals comes from the 455 devastation of Rome by the vandals as Lysidia's daughter-in-law invited her own barbarian to town. <laughs> Maybe the moral of the story, is don't bet on barbarians, I don't know. <laughs> or, it could,
0: or it could speak to the fact that Placidia's Plis, uh, skills were such that she was able to manage barbarians in a way that ver- that nobody else following her ever could.
1: Oh, I like that more. Better. That's much better. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've taken up, well,
0: we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Oh, I'd be delighted to Uh I've just completed uh, a great courses on the history of Spain, which is why Barcelona's on my mind, and they have just contracted me to do 36 women, um, ancient women, from the year one to the year 1400. So I get to revisit biographies and biographies of women, integrating them so deeply into their time and spaces. So, a year, you'll see the great course come out on my biographies of ancient women. Oh, oh, that
0: sounds like a fantastic project. I do look forward to listening to it. Well, Joyce Salisbury, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks a lot. It was great.